As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The terminology has changed. You're getting baffled by science. We're talking about half spaces, low blocks, mid blocks, and they're brainwashing what is coming in from these modern managers. It's just incredible at the moment. Hello, welcome to the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. Thank you for joining us once again. Thanks for joining for the first time, if that is indeed the case. I'm Ali Maxwell. I'm in the studio today with Liam Tharm and with Mark Kerry. How are you doing, guys? Good, Ali. How are you? Good. No Michael Cox with us today. When the cox is away, the mice talk about Brighton and Hove Albion. Of course. Liam, you've been petitioning this for a while. We're going to talk about the race for Europe in the Premier League. But one team in particular, Brighton and Hove Albion, and one manager in particular, Roberto De Zerbi, who I think it's fair to say has somewhat taken the Premier League by storm, despite famously not knowing the league. Uh, Surprising, really. We're going to hear about his impact on Brighton uh, and his tactics as well. Brighton might be in Europe next season. They've got two potential pathways to European football. Uh, If they win the FA Cup, they'll qualify for the Europa League or through the league itself, where Brighton are currently seventh. They're on 42 points with Liverpool, who are just above them on goal difference, and Brentford, who are beneath them on goal difference. Brighton are the team with games in hand, two over Brentford, Fulham, Chelsea, Villa, one over Liverpool, Newcastle United. They're in a strong position. And if Manchester City or Manchester United win the FA Cup while finishing in the top four which you have to say is probable, then the Conference League qualification will be finishing in seventh and Europa League for fifth and sixth. So that's the picture, if you like. And what's nice about this, Liam, is that Fulham are part of this, Brentford are part of this, Newcastle United are part of this. First time that those clubs have been involved really in this conversation. And it's only, what, five seasons ago, they were all in the championship together. Yeah, there was a, a screenshot someone put up on Twitter a while ago. I think it was maybe April time, 20, 2016, 17 season. Um, all sort of the top six, top seven. Obviously, Newcastle and, and Fulham with more of Premier League history, sort of clubs that had, had gone down, working their way back up. And Newcastle seemed to got a tag slapped on them of oh, almost too good for the championship sort of thing. Um, obviously, ended up with a title. Um, but I think really interesting of, of four sides with um, you know very distinct, very clear styles, very different styles. Um, all curated now are under you know very very good sort of head coaches. Um, I know Newcastle have had a lot more investment, and there's obviously more factors surrounding that than maybe the the purity that might get attached to Brighton, Fulham, and Brentford. But um, yeah, really different ways of playing, and I think that's that's a really refreshing thing to see and and help the season by the absence of any real mid table. Mm. Um, it's literally a, a top half. It's it's a top for a scrap for Europe and then the, the big relegation battle. So it's, uh, yeah, you can't do anything about that, I guess, if you're up at the top. But um, yeah, it's good to see these sides pushing for, for their spots. Fulham winning the championship handily last season and kicking on a top half finish looks likely, possible, delete as applicable. Uh, hugely impressive for any team stepping up, having to adapt to the, the different rigours of the Premier League. Of course, the two teams they came up with struggling down at the bottom, Nottingham Forest and Bournemouth. So you talk about having a clear and unique style. It's been very effective for Fulham. How would you describe it, Liam? 
I really like what they do out of possession. Um, there's interesting sort of stats going around about some of their underlying numbers not being as good. Um, if you look at their XGA in particular, but if you split that really by top half opposition against bottom half, um, they tend to get, I think, broken down a lot more by the better teams against a team sort of in the bottom half, which, you know, that is good enough, if we're honest, to, to be beating most of the teams um, sort of below them. But a really nice 4-2-3-1. I think Andreas Pereira has been a fantastic signing at number 10. Uh, a really good partnership with, with Mitra up top, but, you know, has freedom to sort of roam around, um, set pieces delivery is incredible and that's been a real sort of strength of theirs this season but their mid block right from sort of day one uh, they played Liverpool in, in the opening day um, really really good compact organised um, structured defence um, I saw Reem and uh, Diop I think it was at the Amex um, last month and for two defenders that I think aren't, aren't young uh, lots of people don't consider to be top level defenders really really good uh, in defending their box tracking Reem's runners been fantastic mm. this season in incredibly good um, and I, I think that's you know when you've then got Leno as well behind them who's, who's preventing shots at a really good rate there's all those sort of ingredients that they're able to win both boxes really well even if they aren't necessarily the best team sort of between them um, and they've kept that identity in terms of now giving Mitro those uh, those crosses that service that he wants so they've just built on their strengths which they didn't do to be fair last time under Parker they played a back three a lot and just the identity was, was not the same I was going to say, it felt like the, the last time they were in the Premier League, they didn't really have that that same identity and it was to their cost that they they obviously went down as a consequence, but they really carried on that momentum from last season. They were so emphatic in the way that they won the championship last season. Um, to put some numbers to, to what Liam's saying as well, I think we spoke already on this podcast about their uh, their set-piece strength and they've got the the fewest uh, set pieces per goal. So the fewer set pieces per goal that you have, the better and the stronger that you are. And they're 14.8 set pieces per goal is the the lowest and the best in the league. So we've, we've already mentioned how good they are there, but they also play to their strength with Mitrovic in general of just how many um, passes per cross they have as well. It's something I've been looking at more and more recently and they have the fewest passes per cross um, other than West Ham United in the league. Mm. So it shows how how often they want to actually get it into the box using the strengths that they have with players and the, the fullbacks coming wide and, and obviously Mitrovic being able to have that aerial strength. So they have an identity, they stick to it and they're clearly doing it very well this season. I'm really interested in this idea of, of building on your strengths as a team that wins promotion from the Championship to the Premier League. We've discussed that topic a fair few times over the last few years on this podcast, which teams have done it well and which teams have struggled and, and the, the trends, I guess, of, of why that might be. We've looked at teams like Sheffield United and Leeds thriving in their first season with what felt like a notably extreme style of play that maybe the teams in the Premier League weren't expecting or weren't used to playing against and, and that being really good for them just in the short term. Um, for Fulham, I guess the concern would have been, look, you're an incredible attacking team, scored over 100 goals in the Championship, but you know it's going to look a little bit different in the Premier League and and I think yeah you're talking about building on your strengths that's really interesting to me because I'm not sure that you could necessarily say that Nottingham Forest in their approach which was to change things up pretty considerably and, and keep changing things up as the season has progressed and Bournemouth where without wanting to be rude their strengths in the championship weren't quite as obvious as, as Fulham strength clearly they were a good team and they won football matches but it often felt like that was more down to individual talent than any team or structure or system-based success uh, and clearly they have mostly struggled in the Premier League. I guess you could say that Brentford uh, did that very well when they came up um, 18 months ago, building on their strengths, Liam. What are their strengths now as a team that's in eighth place, level on points with Brighton and Liverpool with 11 games left? Yeah, they get famed for their set pieces as well. Um, obviously, their links to, to Midland, etc. Um, the variety they, they've got, Fulham with the same in that regard of, you know, they're not always scoring the, the same set piece. They're quite diverse. Um, you know, they use different players. They can be unpredictable. Liverpool was a great sort of case study game for that. But I think their ability to see out wins is phenomenal. Um, they're quite impressive in how they're probably what you class as more of an old-fashioned side, but they've made it quite attractive to be low-block counter-attack often against bigger teams will be a 5-3-2 uh, the Mboyomo Tony partnership and again this is something that's been curated um, for seasons in the championship under Frank under the same head coach I think Coxie was saying a couple of podcasts ago he's one of the longest serving managers of any current Premier League club albeit not all of those games have been um, in the Premier League and, and tactically he's fascinating to listen to if people watch his uh, mask classes he's done on the coach's voice there you know to hear him speak in detail about how they approach certain games and the playoffs and stuff um, obviously having pushed for that promotion before and not quite got it um, but they've taken 20 points off of the big six teams um, from 19 games uh, as a Premier League outfit, which is since the start of last season. Um, among teams that aren't in the big six, only Brighton have taken more and they've got 23 since the start of last season. So, so that's quite interesting in that Fulham's strength has come in being the best of the 
or better than all the bottom half teams in the games in which they've played and avoiding the issue against the the, the top teams, whereas Brentford going toe-to-toe with the big boys. Yeah, and I, I wrote a piece earlier this season on how they consistently able to see out wins, um, but they don't just see out games 1-0. They'll go one up in games or they go ahead. They'll often score a second. That'll be maybe a counter-attack or a set-piece um, goal, but they're just incredibly hard to break down. They've got one of the best box-fending teams in the league. Um, ben Mee is a great addition in that regard when you look at from Burnley playing the same sort of role, albeit in a different system. Um, Ethan Pinnock as well is an absolute monster in the air, and David Rye I think is exceptional when he come, comes to sort of dealing with crosses and defending his area. Well, having that strength in both boxes aerially is obviously what's key as well. We've spoken again about their their set pieces this season, 13 set piece goals scored, which is the joint highest of any team in the league. So they're certainly playing to their strengths there. And it's a similar story to to Fulham in terms of their their aerial presence and their set pieces. Um, I've been looking at something um, recently about their all teams ability to create chances from back post uh, mm-hmm. chances. So I've defined that in a certain way, but everyone knows broadly what a back post chances and that they have the highest proportion of their total chances created from the back post so it shows that they are clearly yeah have a certain way of playing and they they do it very well we know about their their throw-ins um they have 13 shots generated from throw-in situations this season already more than double uh, any other team in the premier league as well so um yeah to echo what liam said they yeah they do have a real clear clear style and they're doing it well liam tactically or, or in terms of analysis is it accepted that a back post chance would be more optimal than a front post chance. I'm kind of thinking about this for the first time as I speak, but I guess you you, are, you most likely will be attacking the ball and facing the goal with most of the goal in front of you, whereas front post chances, again, you have to be a little more delicate with your finishing, don't you? And maybe a glance or something like that, a little bit more difficult. Yeah, I think it's pretty easy to get space or be unmarked at the back post because generally a ball's going to go over a defender's head. This is something that I, I hear from a lot of the pundits that are played at the top level. So this isn't me speaking from experience, mm. but what I've sort of uh, vicariously consumed that, yeah, when you can get away from a player and then, you know, they're not there to put you under pressure or to block the shot because I think we maybe underestimate how even having a defender close to your own, you can put you off or they can stop you trying to score a certain type of goal. Um, and of course, they often say when the cross comes in one way, if you then make the near post run and the, the ball goes all the way through, mm. get ready because you're then at the back post from the cross on the opposite side. So I think that helps in that regard. And of course, if you get a good enough back post cross or a cutback, you can always take the goalkeeper out of the equation and then that makes it massively easier to score. Newcastle in such a strong position at fifth place. They've got games in hand over everyone except for Brighton and the level on games with Liverpool. They've also got a five-point gap to that clutch of three teams on 42 points. Looking good for a, a European spot next season, albeit could be in, in really any of the three uh, European competitions at this stage. Uh, Liam, are they still in as good a shape as they were a couple of months ago when they went on that incredible run? And, and what does it look like? I think not quite in terms of their underlying numbers. Their finishing's dried up a bit, but um, their style is interesting to me, how they sort of attack very differently um, from one side compared to the other. So down the left, they can be, you know, a fairly bit more conservative and balanced. Um, Byrne is quite a good overlapping fullback, but, you know, played as a centre-back in the in the EFL and in, earlier in his career. He's not uh, a trademark, you know, hit the byline, overlap and, and deliver a cross. Uh, he's much more of an aerial, um, you know, aerial player and, and defender. On the right, they've obviously got Trippier, who we know is quite the opposite, always wants to overlap and that suits you know Miguel Almiron who is a left-footed right winger who loves to come inside Ahmed Walid wrote about sort of his combinations with Bruno Guimaraes earlier this season and you know just how complimentary they are of, of Bruno as someone who can play that threaded through ball um, Almiron makes the runs in behind or play one twos um, so they're really balanced in, in that regard and I think that can help to have different ways of attack uh, it's interesting that St Maximan who is someone who I think was seen as sort of having to carry the team really under Bruce at times and be that sole attacking threat I'm now seeing Newcastle fans and, and people that I speak to saying he's almost not really got away into the team because he's a bit too individualistic when they're trying to play a bit differently now. Um, of course, they're not the most expansive team, partly because they've got just a really good shot stopper who's better at kicking long. But again, yeah, it's a it's a very unique system and you compare that to Fulham, it's it's a different style. It's the same sort of shape, but in, in a very different way. Mm. They've been quite a settled side as well this season. They've been quite fortunate with injuries overall. I think Almiron is out for a few weeks. I'm not entirely sure of the, the prognosis on it, but I'll be interested to to see what happens there because to your point, Liam, that they have that real clear kind of triangle on that right-hand side that if Almiron, which he will be injured for a short amount of time, will that affect their, their build-up and their attacking play because they do rely on him quite heavily. Also, Isak coming back has actually already hit a little bit of form. He's had some some uh, issues with injury as well. So when you said about the goals drying up, small sample size alert, but the past couple of games he showed some mm. um, some some form really. Yeah, I would say visually he suddenly looks a lot sharper than I, I have seen before, albeit quite often in a sort of not a particularly poachy number nine type. A lot of 
speed running in behind into the channels in particular. And then, you know, he is he is confident on the ball when it comes to, to that game against Wolves. He was constantly on it, trying to get inside and get shots off and hasn't quite come off just yet. He scored that lovely headed goal, didn't he, the other day, but um, certainly someone I've got my eye on for the last 10 games or so of the season. Uh, and that leads us to Brighton and Hove Albion. They're in seventh. Uh, their manager, Roberto De Zerbi, came in after six games of the season to replace Graham Potter. Uh, he came into a very, very good situation, a situation that led to Potter getting the job uh, at Chelsea. And De Zerbi didn't win in his first five league games, albeit that included Liverpool, Tottenham and Manchester City. It was a, a tough start and they got through it. And then the sun came up, 27 points from 14 since then. Eight wins in that time, 31 goals scored, which is more than twice a game. Uh, they're in incredible shape. And De Zerbi is picking up a lot of credit, Liam. I heard on the coverage on Sunday, their FA Cup quarterfinal game against Grimsby Town. Brighton always had him in mind to replace Potter. So we're going to talk about De Zerbi, but then we're going to talk about that more broadly. Brighton and Hove Albion, the way that that club operates, the way that they have achieved consistent growth through excellent succession planning. We're going to try and unpick that over the next half an hour or so. Clearly, we're, we're going to work as hard as we can to, to keep Roberto for as long as we can, not only because he's a good coach, he's a good person, he fits the culture of the club really well, and obviously the fans are really enjoying what he's doing. Given that he didn't know the league, uh, Liam, I don't think it's a stretch to say that he's somewhat taken it by storm. I mean, better even, I dare say, than the tactics hipsters could have imagined. <laughs> because I'd already watched a lot of Twitter videos about De Zerbi's Shakhtar and their build-up. And I, I mean, it looked pretty good from where I was sitting. But uh, translating styles across Serie A, the Ukrainian Premier League, and then the English Premier League, not the easiest thing in the world. No, I think Sassuolo are probably more of a useful case study, I think. And from what I heard, I think Paul Barra in particular speak about was almost that as a more comparable project where you've got uh, a team that's in the top half of, you know, one of Europe's top leagues. Uh, obviously, Shakhtar are a lot more dominant in their league and, and maybe get analysed a bit more in depth in sort of the Champions League for quality of opposition. But when we spoke a few podcasts ago about sort of managerial cycles and, and styles within that, it's interesting that this is the kind of approach he used at Sassuolo. It's largely a 4-2-3-1 that he's not really deviated from. The main sort of quirk he will do with it is sometimes pull left back, Pervis Stupinan in more narrow, make a back three and then sort of attack with a front five. And he, he did that against Grimsby purely because they were sat in a 5-4-1, did the same against Bournemouth. Uh, it was a remarkable match to watch that. It's yeah. genuinely, you know, I think as someone who watches as much League Two football as I do Premier League football, mm -hmm. it does remind you that it, it's a, almost a different sport. And I'm sure Grimsby would have felt that as well because of the way that Brighton approach things. You just, you'd never see that in the fourth tier. Yeah, I was, I was pleased with the fans hat on that it was quite professional that we didn't end up making it into a really good sort of FA Cup spectacle. But um, the most interesting thing as a comparison to Potter really is now the emergence of actual sort of wingers, if you will. Mm. Potter never really played them. And that's obviously been the success of Karim Matoma and Sonny March. Sonny March is someone that I think he had four Premier League goals in sort of five seasons, admittedly having played more defensive sort of wingback roles um, at, number, at number 10, a real uh, versatile player in terms of positioning. And it's just consistently played off the right. Um, he's been a bit more sort of uh, frequent in his shooting than Matoma. He's more of a cut inside and will look to, to shoot. Uh, Matoma's been a lot more running behind, dribble 1v1, hit the byline, and has shown, I think, real good sort of variety for attacking crosses really well. You know, I know he missed a great chance against Grimsby attacking the far post, but, you know, attacking those cutbacks where people associate inverted wingers with the Iron Robin type finish of dribbling inside and, and shooting to the far corner. There's one goal Matoma scored like that this season, and, and we all know uh, how good he's been. But, yeah, that, that double pivot that they have behind them, uh, often Alexis McAllister and Moises Caicedo, is the same that uh, deserve use at Sassuolo. And it was just fascinating that he's almost copied and pasted the same approach and it's it's worked to the same degree. He's benefiting now from Evan Ferguson coming in and being a good sort of back to goal um, hold up striker for someone who's as young as he is to bring those wingers and others into play. Um, but I just think it's fascinating that he's able to utilise an approach so well and it, and it fit the style. Mm. Under Potter, Brighton were generally playing a three at the back system with, with three centre-backs. That's obviously changed under De Zerbi. So what's that meant for their build-up with, with Brighton, let's say, from a goal kick without being pressed extremely high? How would they generally approach things now under De Zerbi and how different is that to how they went about things under Potter? Yeah, they were quite organised under Potter, although it maybe started to get a bit more direct towards the end. Um, often at 1-0 up or when winning in games, they play long from Sanchez, um, who obviously now we'll get onto it isn't necessarily the first choice keeper. Um, but they're even more sort of um, organised and controlled and short uh, and really want that press from opposition. You know, there'll be times where 
they'll play with the, the double pivot both really deep. Um, Tifa have done a great video on this where they analyze it and break it down if people want to see it because it's kind of harder to describe. But they do really nice exchange passes between the central midfielders. So Caicedo might receive it. He'll then pop it to McAllister. And he then plays a big switch because everyone's pressed in narrow and suddenly the, the fullback um, or the winger is, is a really good out ball. So they can be really, I think, nervous to watch it sometimes because they are really encouraging quite literally someone to be pressing on them and, and pushing them or going to tackle as they're releasing the pass. But um, ba baiting, isn't it, is the word you use. Completely. I, always, I find it amazing to watch, I must say, because as you say, that the jeopardy of it. Mm. Uh, absolutely. And with the coaching hat on, that's something that takes time to embed and sort of uh, install. So thinking how good it is now, you, you think give it another sort of six months, give him a pre-season, which he hasn't really had. Uh, he's not really had a proper chance of window either. Um, so in that regard, I guess there's room to expect that to sort of go in further. Um, and the real sort of change has been the lack of the long passes from the back. Um, they build up a lot under under Potter and with Sanchez, but one of his biggest strengths as a goalkeeper, Rob Sanchez, is his long distribution. So often he'd hit big switches, big diagonals out to the left to Mark Kukurea, who of course is no longer there either. Um, and at times that, that would work really well. There's a great goal at Anfield where they play short, they recycle it, and then he pings one, um, and they quickly attack. They play through enticingly and score. The same, one of the goals they scored against Manchester United at, at the Amex last May. Um, big switch to Kukurea, play enticingly, and of course he's now said that he thinks still uh, suits his approach better to be playing those ones those passes through the middle into the pivot early um so no place for sanchez currently well i've got the numbers on the the long ball um and you go back to hewton's last season 19 percent of the the whole passes that brighton had were long balls what we'd consider to be long balls and it hovered either side of 12 percent under potter okay so it is to your point liam that it, they didn't exactly play it a ton uh, under Potter, but in the, the moments that allowed it, because Sanchez's long ball distribution was so, so accurate and they were maximizing his strength there. But now it's just over 7% of the passes under Roberto De Zerbi. Granted, not a full season's worth, but still it shows that he's really doubled down on making sure that very rarely did Brighton ever pass long. And you said about baking the press, it, it does instill a certain or require a certain level of bravery from the players to be able to just keep going, even when there's maybe someone who's going to nick in, someone who's blocking the passing lane, someone who's blocking the, the cover shadow, whatever, um, to really continue to say, trust your trust your players, trust your teammates, trust yourselves, trust me that you are. this is the best way to play. And you'll you'll bait the press to the extent where you're opening up spaces elsewhere and they've shown it to great effect and ultimately being more direct when they beat that press to be able to not sit against a deeper block, but to be able to actually expose the spaces. Yeah, the, the tweaks that he's made to build up as well are interesting right from deep with what the front line do. So at times you've got March and Matoma as the two wingers are the most advanced and will look to basically be making these diagonal runs between fullback and centre-back from out on the touchline position. Mm -hmm. And it might be Ferguson or it might be Welbeck at times where we'll drop in deeper and effectively make a midfield box. So you've got the double pivot, um, whoever the number 10 is, maybe it's, it's Pascal Gross, um, could be Adam Lallana, uh, could be McAllister and, and the pivot be, be different. But they'll often pull wide and maybe it'd be Welbeck or Ferguson and be dropping in deeper. Um, that happened a lot against Palace where uh, I think it was Welbert was constantly looking to try and receive from Lewis Dunk. He was trying to pull sort of wider the, the midfield um, in Palace's sort of mid-block and then try and receive that one on the angle to then play forward. Um, and it then just sort of becomes these jigsaw pieces that are all sort of suddenly fluidly moving and um, trying to really bait that sort of line even higher mm. um, and get Matoma and March sort of to be, be a lot more incisive. The through-ball numbers have doubled from about one a game under Potter to, to over two under Deserbi, which I know as Mark says is a, is a small sample, but you can Consider some of the opposition they've played in that as well. Some real sort of top teams. I know some some lower ranking teams as well, but consistently looking for that that one in behind. The, the best example is um, Ferguson's goal at Stoke in, in the cup, where Matoma makes that run uh, for the the pass between fullback and sort of centre back, and then gets that that tapping for the cutback. So they just weren't passes that. Potter seemed to want at all. Um, often it was a lot of recycled play, yeah. um, sort of like water polo style, you ring around the edge of the box where you're keeping it and then attacking through crosses, um, which a lot of the time did create high quality chances when they came off because you're getting a chance close to goal. But often it was under pressure, it was aerial, maybe a header. Didn't always suit the players perfectly, I don't think. And by the end of Potter's reign, it was interesting that there was a lot more in transition, um, which is maybe more akin to these incisive ones that Deserbi wants. Well, I actually looked at the, the location of the chance creation to your to your point there, Liam, and it was this season, um, it's 39% of the chances that they are created if you split the, the pitch into the attacking half of the pitch into three. So the left channel, the central channel and the right channel. And 39% are coming from the central third of the pitch, which kind of suggests what you're saying. If you're having those wingers that are coming from out to in, that the actual the location of the chance created the pass before that is coming from a central area. So it is maybe 
Ferguson who's dropping in and then allowing the other players to to make those runs a, ahead of them. So that's across the past four seasons, that's comfortably higher than any other time to comparing it with there where you're trying to maybe work it into those wider areas to w get further up the pitch, but not necessarily be in a, in a more lucrative position. Um, so it's interesting to see that it's comfortably higher um, than any of the past four seasons there. I really enjoyed that just because um, over last summer and Mark helped me out on this, we, we did a piece on sort of the, the dying art of the through ball that was basically on decline across Europe's sort of top leagues that, you know, there was obviously VAR now to, to deal with offsides, sweeper goalkeepers, uh, just more organised, better, compact defences. Um, so to see teams now sort of trying to now play against those high lines and try and play through is, uh, you know, maybe we'll start to see this not just be a Brighton thing and maybe a, a wider sort of resurgence with those, um, those old school through balls. I mean, they're expected goals per shot number has gone up pretty significantly from last season to this season as well. Everything that you've described, the way that they are approaching build-up uh, in their defensive and middle third in order to create good chance in the final third, it for me it paints a picture of a team that must be very difficult to defend against because of the variety of options, because of the intricacies of what they're trying to do. And, well, that's been borne out in the numbers 31 goals in their last 14 games only Arsenal have scored more crucially this is working in terms of actual goals and it was a bit of a knock on Graham Potter for what two seasons Brighton's XG4 was notably high their goals did not tally up with it they were underperforming their expected goals and it caused a lot of head scratching and we wondered whether it was just unfortunate and it would start to you know the, the variants would kick in and, and they would they would have a better time of it and yeah that did broadly start to happen but I wonder if we could just bring Potter in here and look back at his Brighton side, maybe his Chelsea side as well, who are struggling for goals and not creating a, a ton of chances for a supposed big six team. Does this reflect badly on Potter, the fact that De Zerbi has, has managed to come in and, and just loosen everything up in, in, su in such a way? Does it maybe raise a question mark about a blind spot of, of Potter's coaching and his management style? I'll say kind of, but I think largely no. I think in the same way that Chelsea fans will now say his remit at Brighton was very different to what it is now at Chelsea. I think the same as we said for, for De Zerbi. Um, Potter came in with a fairly older squad. Um, obviously, it wasn't the only changes that were made, but trying to make a younger squad that was playing more attractive football, that Brighton were not a top possession side. You know, they their underlying numbers were, were quite poor. Bottom five in the Premier League and has, has pushed them. It took time, but it's pushed them up to really building good foundations now and of course he's not the only one that deserves credit for that because you see he's now gone and the club is still doing just as well as it has done if not even better so he wasn't the, the sole part of that but I think Potter's teams have always been about controlling the game as much as you can um, winning the game or being the better team sorry um, between both boxes rather than in them um, my big critique early on was that and it sort of continued was attacking against a low block is really hard to do um, Part of it's easy to do in the, term, in the sense that if team wants to be defensive, they will let you keep the ball. You can play it around the edge of the box, but there's not that many strikers in the world that are elite at sort of attacking against a packed, packed box. One, to find space. Two, where to make the runs. Um, and you need even better creators, I'd argue. It takes a real good player to find that entire pass. I think we associate Kevin De Bruyne with someone that can pick lock, but there's not many in the league that can do that regularly. Um, and it, it's really tough to do without sort of consistent um, good investment and good training. So, as you've spoken about with sort of some of the other teams, that being adaptable is a, is a really big thing. Um, De Zerbi has shown some elements of being able to do that. Obviously, you know, bought in someone like Matoma, which was done under Potter um, or during his reign, I should say, and how much he had a say in that, I don't know. But um, he scored headed goals. He got the winner against Bournemouth, who was sat back in a low block that we couldn't pick apart. And at all. we could pick apart and then miss chances. And then he pops up to score. So, um, yeah, I think some some credit to um, De Zerbi for how he's utilising them in maybe a more effective way individually. I think Potter was really good at making a team which, you know, the good August Stout theory of it was definitely more than some of its parts, especially early sort of 1920 where he had a lot of leftovers from what was a championship promoted squad. Um, yeah, so the evolutions that were made were necessary and were really effective. I think it goes back to the point that you made earlier, Ali, in terms of the, the quality, the average quality of the shot um, in terms of Potter's reign, a little bit lower than maybe it is under Roberto De Zerbi now in that, they're maybe playing against lower blocks and trying to make sure that they dominate up until that box that you said, Liam, that the XG might be slightly inflated in suggesting that they actually have yeah, lower quality shots, but more of them. Whereas under Roberto De Zerbi, they are 
they're more clinical in, in the opportunities, but there's also the numbers to suggest that they are crafting more situations which allow them to, to put them in a better position to score. So for example, 1.9 direct attacks per 90 uh, under Graham Potter last season and going up to the, the first few games of, of this season, that's 2.7 per 90 under Deserby. And we've spoken about direct attacks before as a proxy of counter-attacking, that they are kind of more willing to maximise and make the use of those transitional moments. Whereas under Potter, it might be a case even more so of resetting, yeah. allowing your, yourself as the team in possession to get structured, but then also allowing the opposition to get structured mm -hmm. and trying to start again. Those quality chances that you're going to generate aren't going to be as high as if you're going to just maximise and make the most of those transitional moments. Right, but we should mention the flip side of the more chaotic approach. I think we discussed the fact that Potter's team, they didn't really want to engineer moments of chaos or transition. If anything, they wanted to keep the ball partly as a defensive tactic and their defensive numbers were very, very good. How do Deserby's defensive numbers compare? Yeah, they're, they're a bit worse um, and particularly worse when you consider later in, in Potter's reign. So under Graham Potter per game, they faced 1.7 big chances, uh, 1.2 goals against per game, which was about the same as the XGA they conceded, uh, but about 30% uh, clean sheet rate. So close to one in three. Um, and that's across the entire entirety of his reign. If you go from just the start of 2021, 22, um, it was about one in three. So, you know, that's really, really good when you consider um, what they're pushing for in the league. Uh, again, small sample size, Claxon, um, slightly more goals conceded um, from De Zerbi, 1.4 a game. Um, they've only kept four clean sheets in 18 Premier League games, which comes out at 22%. Um, so when they can be more chaotic, they can have issues sort of going the other way, um, which isn't necessarily a problem because they're scoring so many now. And the impressive part of that is that I think a lot of the easy narratives were Brighton just need a 15 slash 20 goal a season striker. They still don't have one. They've got three players with seven goals this season, which includes Leandro Trossard, who's obviously now at Arsenal, Alexis McAllister, if you include penalties, Solly March is on seven, uh, and Pascal Gross and Karim Matoma both have six each. So it's really well sort of spread around, um, which again is fine if you have that or sort of a, a high scoring player. Um, but you look at how they've sort of managed games late on and there have been issues at times. There's been points dropped. There's been games where they've maybe not come back as well when they have gone behind. Um, one of the biggest strengths towards the end under Potter um, was how many games they won after going ahead. So they won 16 of 19 games and didn't lose uh, under Potter after going ahead from the start of 2021-22 until all the way through to the end of his reign, um, mid-2022-23. And that includes Manchester United, um, that includes Arsenal, Tottenham, West Ham. Um, sorry, that's Manchester United twice as well. That's, that's home and away, so it's quite quite incredible when you consider it's not just teams you maybe quote unquote expect them to beat um and i think that's that's a way to win uh, we spoke before about sort of managers having different staffs and different approaches and i think fans when we get more on board with deserbies because it's more we want to outscore a team rather than we want to win and maybe keep a clean sheet that is a good thing to raise just to touch on the idea behind potter's approach which maybe broadly we could say is more based on control and when they went ahead Boy, did they control things very, very well, whereas Deserby's team may struggle a little more on that front. Yeah, and I think Potter's one of Potter's strength, and it still is now at Chelsea, is that he is more of a tinkerer and he is able to have that control based on also the strengths of the opposition and making sure that he nullifies that. Whereas Deserby has a lot of control in the, the, the really strong principles that he likes to play, which we've spoken about and we will continue to, to touch upon here. I guess one question that I, I ask in terms of next season, now because Deserby has such a clear style of play, everyone will have played Brighton once, yep. at least maybe twice. Will they be a little bit more predictable to to play against? Whereas Potter, where Potter can come into his own there is that because he can chop and change and go from a back three to a back four, different midfield, etc. Does he make himself more predictable as a manager? But then you, you've got to take the rough with the smooth because of what we just said there. So it's it's all it's it's posing the question as much as anything. But I think it'll be interesting to see in the next sort of twelve months. Yeah, it's the sort of thing we I think we criticised or, or had question marks over Antonio Conte for at Spurs as a sort of more elite level example of that. Um, and to give Potter a lot of credit now. His Chelsea team are struggling to score goals, but they're also really quite good defensively. They're one of the best teams in the Champions League in, in the group stages. I know their group might not have been the best, but they conceded once against Dortmund in, in the um, in the knockout legs, and that, that's a transition from a corner. From so, their uh, own corner. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Uh, which we've already broken down on, on a previous part if people want to uh, listen to the breakdown of that. But 
it's just different ways of doing things uh, and that's fine um, and I get that almost once you've had a few years of Potter doing that control thing people then go no I want the other thing now you know and there's then been times this season where I've gone I quite miss the control and seeing out a game 2-0 rather than this chaotic sort of um, way of doing it but there's merits to both and as long as you're winning as we said before on the manager cycle it's fine people don't ask questions um, whether there's then a drop off we wait and see Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Well, let's move from on-field tactics to off-field strategy. It's it's unavoidable when we talk about Brighton and Hove Albion to talk about what they do off the field and how they do it and why they do it and why it appears to be working quite so well. From managerial succession planning, from Hewton to Potter to De Zerbe, uh, and also in terms of player recruitment, Mitoma and McAllister uh, and Caicedo, probably the three... Um, the top three on the podium right now for players that uh, Brighton and Hove Albion spent a certain amount of money on who they will sell for a lot more money having performed very well for the team itself. Mark, pretty broad question. What, as you understand it, is Brighton's scouting and recruitment process or, f- or philosophy? And why isn't anyone else doing it as well? It's difficult to say why no one else is doing it quite as well. If if anyone knew, then I suppose everyone would be doing it. Um, I guess Liam's in a better position to, to maybe know from the inside a little bit more. But um, I'm obviously going to be speaking about data a, a little bit, and I think that hope so. Yeah, I think that I think it's a wider point that a lot of clubs, professional clubs specifically in the Premier League, are using data. They have a data scientist, a data analyst, and they're very very well qualified individuals. I think where Brighton and Brentford, to a different extent, uh, differ. Liverpool, you can include in that as well, is that the culture from top to bottom is data-led. And it's very much you have the buy-in from everyone to know that this is what we're all pulling in the same direction. And any information that is data-led, whether it is recruitment, um, staff members, managers, obviously, the, the way that they got to Zerbi in, in a short space of time, they had a really clear idea that they wanted him um, when Potter left or was was being spoken to. That succession planning, uh, player level as well, is so, so clear from top to bottom, rather than, as I say, and I've spoken to people who I know can offer data, but it's not necessarily received as well by the coaching staff, by the managers, by the the board, etc. So I think that that's where Brighton have a real clear strength and other clubs have it too, but Brighton definitely, in this example, are really clear in their data mm-hmm. culture and it's it's proving to be very lucrative in the way that they are buying a low low risk low uh cost yeah low cost um and selling for for a high fee as well and they've done it time and time again to show that this is not by chance um this is certainly by design mark spot on and there's a few things that i want to sort of touch on further that maybe get a bit overlooked um one is that 
from an academy perspective, when you look at their sort of catchment area um, of the players that they're allowed to, to recruit up to certain ages has to be within, I think it's a, a 90 minute drive. At older age groups, it might be down to an hour in the younger ones, but without sounding stupid here, half of that is in the sea for them. Um, so they have to be a bit more creative in how they do things. Compare that to likes of Arsenal, where you're going to extend that for, you know, 90 minutes um, north and south. You've just got a bigger catchment area, the same up north as sort of Manchester United, etc. And of course, they've got Southampton to compete with or other sort of clubs around the south coast, but Southampton having a very prestigious, famous academy, it just generally makes things a bit more difficult. They still do really well at academy level. Um, the, the team is up in the PL2. They're performing really well. Um, and they're constantly now getting graduates through um, and they're also balancing that well with sort of developing players from young or recruiting older players that maybe get released. Of course, Ben White is the famous example from Southampton. So again, you need that balance all the way through that I think Chelsea are a very rare example of being able to sort of get four, five, six players from under nines all the way through that. That doesn't really happen. That's not the standard. That's just exceptional. Um, and that's, all, again, because their, their coaching and player development um, sort of pathway now is really, really good. So Dan Ashworth came in off the back of sort of revolutionising what the FA did um, and undertook a similar process there. I have no idea what he did, but I know it worked really, really well. Um, and of course, the P came along with all of that as well. Um, but other clubs sort of the analogy I've seen on Twitter is they don't need to shop in the same sort of shops. So bigger clubs, let's take Arsenal and City at the top of the league, um, probably don't need to be recruiting in these these other leagues and sort of the more obscure leagues around the world because they've got the finances and they've got the pulling power. They've got the luxury of European football that players already want. So they don't need to do that because clubs like Brighton exist. So, you know, there's no, I don't see there being a requirement for Arsenal to go out and find a Karim Matoma and develop them themselves. And is it, is there any possibility that if they could continue on this cycle for a certain amount of time, they really could rise up the food chain pretty significantly? Because Dan Ashworth spoke to The Athletic a couple of years ago. I found the quote uh, yesterday saying, if we fish in the same pools at the same time as 10 or 11 clubs, we'll lose because we don't have the financial clout or the promise of Champions League football or the Europa League to try to attract players. So we've either got to see them first in a different pool, or we've got to go younger and try and develop them. If we go head-to-head with, say, Everton, they've got a different story to tell, a different financial package to buy, and to retain the player. Surely they're strengthening those weak spots, both the offering of potentially European football, that's not going to happen at Everton anytime soon, and in theory, if you are doubling, tripling uh, your revenue with player sales then surely there'll be more in the in the kitty yeah i think it's knowing from the player's perspective they're providing more and more evidence that the player will get game time because i think that's if they want a pathway into the premier league and i'm sure this isn't what the you know the likes of paul barber as the ceo is necessarily saying but words to the effect of if you come to the premier league you'll play for us you'll certainly get the minutes and if you are really that special of a player and arsenal and manchester city and liverpool and manchester united chelsea etc do come calling we won't stand in your way. And I think that's a good model for them financially, as I say, to to sell on for a huge fee, but to know that they are going to get those minutes um, rather than, as you say, Arsenal don't need to, et cetera, don't need to buy in that that same um, that same market, then it's, it's beneficial for everyone, I think. And I was thinking about this the other day in terms of Enzo Fernandez. I think Benfica signed him from River Plate for £9 million and we know how much he went for for Chelsea. But Chelsea would never have or would rarely have gone straight to River Plate. And it's the same player, but he almost needs to have the evidence that this this player can play in a a top five, six European league, can play Champions League football. That if you'd have just maybe took a little bit of a risk on buying that £9 million player who wasn't as proven in that league then maybe they could have got they could have saved themselves a lot of money basically and i think brighton are at least maybe that conduit a little bit more they're able to give players who are of a lower risk those minutes and then they can sell them on if they need to there's three things they do better than most clubs um one is they're more self-aware um i think brighton's a place is a bit different to other parts of england anyway um but they know where they are as a club um as ashworth has sort of spoken and and being very honest and as we said before that other clubs will recruit or do things based on what they want to be, maybe more so than what they are, and they'll you know target things that are maybe outside of their their range or recruit the wrong players. The second and third things are kind of tied together. Um, they're prepared and patient to let players develop, and that's because they also allow players to go out on loan. They'll they'll buy players and lend them back. Um, if you look at Caicedo as a good example, went and spent time uh, at Beerschot, I think it was in in uh, in Belgium. And um, Karim Matoma spent time on loan at Union Saint Um having come across from sort of Japan as well, and Alexis McCall. Spent time when he was signed in Argentina, and um, spent time on at Boca Juniors, which of course is 
better experience than what you're going to get for playing for Brighton because he played in the Copa Libertadores, which is obviously the South American um, equivalent of the Champions League. So that is above what he was expected to do at Brighton. And those players were signed and have, people say burst onto the scene, but they've been a player that's been a work in progress from the club's perspective for two, three years already. Like these aren't overnight successes. These are things that are planned and meticulously done. There's a loans manager that has been for years now. Um, and they're just, as we said before, with like football getting increasingly more impatient and short term, they just trust things to, to think long term. And that's probably down to, to Tony Bloom's background as, as a gambler, but also a fan of the club. Um, he's probably got the perfect balance in having had success and in working in, in an industry that requires you to be so objective, where you need to be honest and you need to be aware. You know, he, he gambles, uh, he plays poker professionally, uh, he owns a horse. He's, you know, all these successful things that I think feed into what he does uh, as a chairman. Yeah, and a, and a word for Paul Barber as well. He's been there for a long time, I think 11 years now as well. And I was listening to a podcast with him and he was basically saying how they look to recruit from a position of strength. Because if you know that if they would have, you know, uh, sold Caicedo to Arsenal recently, as they were tipped to maybe do, then everyone would have known that they had a pot of cash to then try and find another midfielder. But they always recruit from a position of strength where when there was maybe when they were seeing Basuma doing really well, they had Caicedo already in the building or already on the books, I should say, um, to be able to know that when Basuma does eventually leave because he's on a very sharp upward trajectory, we've got Caicedo to come in. And they're sort of constantly doing that across all positions. So it's, I guess, no surprise that when one player leaves, there's so many examples of high profile players leaving, they've got someone else where, where the quality doesn't really drop off in the player because they've thought about this over a long period rather than think, oh, we've lost Dan Byrne, we better get someone in quickly and also not from a position of strength. So they, they very much do think in the long term and it speaks to the model of the club. And it's not always a case of just like trying to directly replace the player's profile or specifically their stats. I don't want to use the, the money ball analogy, but it's kind of tied to that of as long as you can get out of the team what you were doing before or better with this player, maybe it looks slightly different, that's fine. It doesn't need to be, oh, we're losing this left winger that plays in a certain way. We need the exact same thing again. No, it's like, we can do this differently. Not just the players as well. They've lost director of football, Dan Ashworth, head of recruitment, Paul Wynn Stanley, Liam Tharm as well. And, and mm. they've kept moving up the league. I guess for those listening who don't support Brighton, maybe they support another Premier League team and, and they would like their team to do similar things to Brighton. How feasible do you think this, as in what we've just discussed, clearly quite a complicated thing that takes time to implement and courage to execute, how feasible is that to, to replicate? I've got Southampton springing to mind here just because of the involvement of Rasmus Ankerson, of course, formerly of, of Brentford. Um, do you think there are teams who will try and build this sort of structure and, and try and replicate the success? Is, is it a feasible thing or a one-off? Uh, difficult to answer. I think that going back to my point before, I think it has to be from top to bottom in terms of that data-led approach. It's clear that they, for everything that we've said, it's long-term, it's top to bottom, it's a full culture. Maybe if a club would try to replicate it and were to hire a few data analysts, no, it wouldn't work quite in the same way. So it has to be kind of absolutely all in or not at all, uh, I think. So difficult one to um, to answer, but comparing with, with Southampton or I guess Leicester previously as someone probably most recently who punched above their weight, they were the ones who everyone was raving about. They were getting into Europe. They were doing so, so well. This is even after they've they won the Premier League um, in recent seasons and they've dropped off a little bit. So without sort of answering pessimistically, I think this is really good for Brighton at the moment and it's shown how long-term their success has been climbing up the football pyramid. But if we're talking about them right at the upper echelon, we need to maybe consider this again in 12 months, 18 months time um, because they've had a really clear model. But if they are going to continue to maybe lose players and replace them, there's maybe only so long that can carry on and because there's always going to be an element of risk to the, the recruitment. So they've, they're a fantastically run club, but it, if it's going to be sustainable in the long term, we need to maybe wait in the long term. I don't think clubs should replicate it for the sake of replicating it because it looks nice and looks like it's working. Again, it's what the club needs to be successful. Clubs are all built um, differently. They have different pathways for things, different structures, different styles of play. Um, and Brighton, as Mark says, did things in a very long-term way. Potter was given a contract extension very early into his tenure, um, I think within sort of six months because they liked what they saw. They stuck with him in periods where yeah, I think went 10 or 11 games unbeaten, five losses in a row. They admittedly came in a season where Brighton up with a, with a record Premier League points total. So I guess if you sat down before the start of the season and said, what were your expectations? And you tick those off. 
great, that's fine. If that comes in the middle of having a really bad patch where other clubs, like we've just seen with Crystal Palace as a prime example, sort of um, saying, no, we're going to get rid of you, um, that works both ways. We've, we've chatted all about the managerial stuff before, so I won't go over that again. But um, yeah, it's it's doing in ways in a things in a way, sorry, that work because of Brighton's specific circumstances, not just going, oh, data's nice and modern and forward thinking. It's it's because it works for that specific club. So I can see people going, oh, data looks cool and innovative and new. And it's that shiny thing that everyone then wants to wants to go for to, to be like, oh, we're using data now. It's like, okay, but but what what's your why sort of thing? Let me tie it all together with a, a strong shot of something topical. Might they need to succession plan once more in the dugout? Tottenham Hotspur's manager, Antonio Conte, is, as we record, still the Tottenham Hotspur manager. But you wouldn't know it based <laughs> on the coverage of Tottenham Hotspur this week. We think that Tottenham might be looking for a new manager. And Roberto De Zerbi's name, inevitably, is on the list. Put your personal bias aside, Liam. I know you wouldn't want him to go to Tottenham. Do you think he might fit there? Yeah, I think there's a, a list of other other managers that do. I made this shout for Thomas Tuchel um, earlier on in the week as someone that maybe fit the style I thought a bit better and has more success at achieving what they wanted in terms of things like Champions League. So um, yeah, he, he fits, but I think there's quite a few that, that fit. Spurs' problem really is that their identity has been maybe a bit too specific under, under Conte and they've not, um, they've sort of lurched between these, these coaches of trying to sort of desperately, I think, really win a trophy and succeed in the Champions League. But I think they need something very immediate and impactful because Son and Kane are, I think Son's now 30, Kane's 29, that they've got two really outstanding world-class players, maybe not quite as good as the rest of the squad, but they've got two key players who, are, if they're not in their peak years now, are coming out of them and you need to sort of squeeze every every last drop out of them that you can. I think he would improve Spurs on and off the ball. Um, the way that Spurs fans at the moment think that it's quite drab to actually watch a, a game of football there. So I think he would certainly improve Spurs. I think he would actually have a good fit for all the reasons that Liam said. And I think going back to what we've spoken about earlier, I don't think that the, the Brighton board will be under any illusions that he will be sought after in the coming season. So they'll probably already be looking at other managers anyway, just as a potential succession plan. Basically, they're not stupid and they know that he's a very good manager. So irrespective of what happens, I do think Brighton, which is again, the theme of this whole podcast, will be looking so long term to know that they will find someone if, if he were to ever leave. Heading to Wembley for the FA Cup semi-final, potentially heading Overseas in European football next season, Brighton and Hove Albion, Roberto De Zerbi. It was about time we went deep. Thank you so much to Liam and to Mark for talking me through it all. One of the most interesting teams in English football. Absolutely no doubt about that. That's been this week's episode. Please join us again next week. Make sure you're subscribed to this podcast feed. Uh, Michael will be back uh, and reinvigorated and refreshed, no doubt. Theathletic.com forward slash tactics to sign up to The Athletic today. You'll pay £1.99 a month for the first 12 months of your subscription. He's still been churning out some very interesting articles, Michael Cox. So I would suggest that you sign up today if you haven't already. And join us, please, next time on the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. The Athletic.